0: Please remain standing as I read today's scripture. Today's scripture is from Colossians 3 verses 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who who is your life, appears, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you, must, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts,
1: You may be seated. Thank you, Sheila, for reading that for us this morning. Well, good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is so good to see your faces. It's good to hear you sing, particularly this morning. I don't know if it's this room or if you just have extra energy because of the weather or what, but hearing you sing this morning was an encouragement to me. I hope it was an encouragement to you. And if you're not already there in your Bibles, if you have them, turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3. My name is Jonathan Mosher. It's my privilege and my honor to be able to open up the Word of God for you this morning and look at this beautiful text. Well, on top of a a strange circumstance in a strange year, 2020, where for the first time in all of our lives, most likely, we were compelled not to meet, we felt in our souls and in our, our innermost being the lack of fellowship with one another. The lack of what it is to be the gathered church, to be part of the communing of the saints together with our Savior to partake in all of the elements of what it is that we do as a church. And in our particular case, uh, the building in which we were meeting, as Dave mentioned earlier, became unavailable to us. That led to us being apart for about two and a half to three months. And as you all know and have experienced personally, for a whole lot of reasons, it's been a rough, a rough last year. And when we go through a crucible like what this year has been, it reveals in a very real sense what we value, and what we take for granted. It's estimated, according to a recent Barna survey, that among self-proclaimed evangelical Christians, nearly 30% of those who left the church because of COVID will not return. I mean, think for just a moment about what that says about our faith, about what our understanding of the church is, about what our what our devotion is to the ideas that Scripture actually lays down for us. I mean, there are all kinds of things that, that we all missed this la- last year at varying points. We missed family gatherings and the freedom to travel, the freedom to go about our business in the community. For some of us, even things like attendance at funerals of people that we loved, participation in weddings of those that were being joined together. There are all sorts of things that we began to miss. But, but when it comes to the church... A year like this last one really poses another question, which is what does it actually mean to be the local church, to be the gathered assembly of God's people? If it's something that for so many can be easily discarded, it's evidence that at the very root there's a misunderstanding of what the church is all about. So we understand now, in a way that we probably didn't a year and a half ago, that there may be extreme and unique times in the life of the church where people are prevented from gathering either collectively, as in the early stages of a pandemic, or because of some other external limitation. And for those who know Christ, there really ought to be a grieving in times like that. Even if we're unable to meet because of some imposed condition, there ought to be a sense of grieving over what we've lost. If the church is unable to gather we are missing something vital because the church is not functioning the way that God intended it to function unless it is gathered. So podcasts and video streams and social media, these are all amazing tools to reach other people, to connect people who are unable to be around, all of those sorts of things. But none of that can replace or replicate what the gathered church can do. And in the very same way that we grieved in what we lost in that last season, we want to take some time to remember and celebrate God's provision for us in this season. and the various ways that He's led us forward as a church to recognize His goodness His grace and His provision in bringing us back together and providing a place for us to worship. So a year later, we're doing just that. And in so doing, we remind ourselves not to take for granted the beautiful privilege and responsibility of gathering with God's people. So the question becomes this then. How do we actually define the local church? And if we went around the room, I'm sure we could come up with all kinds of good points and different perspectives and different things that we'd bring to the table. But here was my best attempt in this season, learning from what we've learned over this last year of how to define the local church. The local church is a gathered group of redeemed people. And by the way, that word gathered, I may not have included a year ago because I probably would have presumed it. But the local church is a gathered group of redeemed people who are committed to worship the teaching of the word the fellowship of the saints, and the observance of the sacraments in order to be equipped to do the work of the gospel ministry for the glory of God. Now that's a mouthful, and I don't expect you to write it down or remember it, but I'll repeat it one more time. The local church is a gathered group of redeemed people. These are people who know and love Jesus Christ, who've experienced his salvation, who are committed together to worship, to the teaching of the Word, to the fellowship of the saints, and to the observance of the sacraments in order to be equipped to do the work of the gospel ministry for the glory of God. And that's Matthew 18, Matthew 28, Acts chapter 2, Romans chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 10. We could go on and on and on, but that's not really the point. The question, though, becomes this for us. How do we actually do these things? How are we actually to be the church, to be a church that both rests in the gospel and is driven by the gospel? And we find one potential answer in Colossians chapter 3, because this text provides provides an interesting perspective on what the church is. Paul begins this text by explaining in the first half the nature of what it is that Christ has done for us. And then in a very Pauline way, he shifts in the second half and says, now this is how it actually applies to your life. This is what it is to live in light of what Jesus has done for us. And the essential message that Paul wants, us, wants to communicate to us in this text is that the same gospel that provided the new birth, salvation in Jesus Christ, also provided everything we need for our new life together. So look with me if you would at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Listen to these words. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So here's how Paul is going to start. He says, understand this, the old you is dead. An amazing declaration about what Jesus Christ actually accomplished for us. That in a sense, there was a co-crucifixion that happened at the cross of Jesus. That Jesus died and in our sins being put on him, it is as if the old man, and as the Bible describes if the old flesh, our nature apart from Christ, our corrupt being was put onto Christ and nailed to a tree. We are dead on the cross because of what Christ accomplished for us. And not only that, but now your life is hidden with Christ. So he's giving us this dual perspective. It's what we see in Galatians chapter 2 where where he says, it's me in Christ. It's as if Christ is surrounding me on all sides. I'm wrapped up in Christ. My identity is in him. He surrounds me. And likewise, Christ now lives in me. So Christ outside of me, Christ inside of me. If you want to come through Christ to get to me, you know what you meet? Christ. Everything about who you are has been shifted and changed, transformed. New life, new being, new identity that Jesus obeyed the law that we couldn't obey, that he received the wrath of God that you and I deserved for our sin. That, as we'll talk about in the coming weeks, he rose from the grave as the guarantor of our new life. And he provided the means for adoption into the family of God and a future home with him. Now, any one of those points could be a sermon. But that is what Jesus Christ accomplished for us To use Paul's language in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ so that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, as we just sung, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So here's what he's saying. The same gospel that saved you is the one that sustains you. The gospel that provided your new standing before God also provides your sanctification in God. It is the Christ life being lived in you. See, when we talk about the gospel, we typically talk about the very basic elements of what it takes to to be saved, to be born again in that understanding. But understand this, the gospel is not the step one of Christian life where God did his part and now you do your part. For the Christian, the gospel is the starting point, it's the pathway, and it's the destination. It's all-encompassing, and you can see that in this text. Verse one, you have been raised with Christ, past tense, because of what Jesus did in the resurrection. You have been given new life, you've been raised anew with him. Verse three, now your life is hidden with Christ in the present, your life is wrapped up in his. And in verse four, you will appear with him in glory. Past, present, and future, the gospel defines your life as a Christian. It defines your past as paid for by Christ. It it defines your presence being wrapped up in Christ. It defines your future resting in Christ. And the beauty of the structure of this text itself is that inherently it communicates the gospel. That what you do in right living is always born out of what Jesus did first for you. And in verses 5 through 11, you get a picture that now that this old man is dead and it's the Christ life being lived in you, there is a call given to each of us to put to death those earthly things. In the words of John Owen, that we are to be killing sin or sin will be killing us. That we are to live in line with this new identity. And look how he defines it. He says, put to death, starts with this picture, sexual immorality anything perverse, anything we're caught up in, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, anything that would enwrap us or ensnare us, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, all of those ideas are connected, evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, Dishonesty. Now, why does he go through this laundry list of sins? He's saying that because if, when you get to verse 9 through 10, he's saying you've put off the old self with its practices, and you are to put on the new self. See, for the Christian, your identity is no longer in your sin. It's what Martin Luther described as simul justus et peccator, at the same time, saint and Sinner. That though we at times feel bogged down with our flesh, do you understand that whatever sin seems to beset you in your Christian walk is not what defines you any longer? That when God looks at you, He does not define you by the sins that you struggle with, but rather defines you by the life of His Son. And therefore, for us to indulge in that old flesh is to forget who we are in Christ. So Elise Fitzpatrick said it this way, She said, one reason we don't grow in ordinary, grateful obedience as we should is that we've got amnesia. We've forgotten that we are cleansed from our sins. In other words, ongoing failure in sanctification, the slow process of change into Christlikeness, is the direct result of failing to remember God's love for us in the gospel. If we lack the comfort and assurance that his love and cleansing are meant to supply, our failures will handcuff us to yesterday's sins. And we won't have faith or courage to fight against them. Or the love of God that's meant to empower this war. If we fail to remember our justification, redemption, and reconciliation, we'll struggle in our sanctification if we fail to remember that we have been declared righteous in Jesus Christ, justification, redemption, that we've been purchased from our slavery to sin, and reconciliation, that we've been made right with God for all time, we will struggle in our sanctification, which is that slow process of becoming like Him. So self-righteousness inherently, understand this, the accusation that is tossed at Christians as much in our day, by the way, as it was 2,000 years ago, that accusation of self-righteousness and self-righteous living is born of a misunderstanding of God's love and grace. Because self-righteousness presumes that God's love is temporary and conditional. It presumes that God is waiting for an opportunity to pull the rug out from underneath your feet. And nothing for the Christian could be further from the truth. The truth is that your forgiveness has already been provided through Jesus. Your acceptance has already been guaranteed in Jesus. Your future has already been secured by Jesus. And in focusing on the gospel of Jesus, you are driven to put to death the desires of the flesh. So if there's self-righteousness on one hand, by definition on the other hand, it means that some of us view grace as a license to do whatever it is we want to do. And conversely to self-righteousness, the grace of God is not a license to indulge in the desires of our flesh. Because to view grace that way would actually be to view it counter to the way that Paul describes it in this text. Rather, the freedom of the gospel is that the lavish grace of God shown in His pursuing love and his, his guarantee of acceptance of us is what motivates us to grateful obedience. And this new life granted by Christ not only shows itself in the putting to death of those old behaviors, but also in a whole new set of character traits in which we grow. And this is where the gospel begins to play itself out in the life Of the local church. So look what he says in verse 12. You're to put off those old things. In fact, you're to put them to death. But now, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and blameless, And before we jump into the list, let's talk about those words. He says, as God's chosen ones, that you were called out before time, according to Ephesians chapter 1 and Romans chapter 8, that God Himself, before time began, set His love and affection on you, that He chose you to be His, knowing your failures and your struggles, He chose you to be redeemed and justified and saved. Not based on anything you would do or anything you can do, but based solely on his sovereign grace. So he says, understand first, your identity as a Christian is as a chosen one, one holy and beloved of God. And that word holy just means called apart, separated, that you are called out of that old life, out of that old manner of thinking, out of the system of this world, out of the mindset of this world, and that you are now called to something entirely different, that you are positionally righteous, redeemed, and right and standing before God, and that you, now you are called into right behavior. You are not only holy, but you are also beloved. And that word beloved is so rich but it's one that we don't often use. See, the word beloved means that you've been given an ongoing status. And in this case, it means that you've been given an ongoing status of being drenched in the love of the Father. That His love was set on you in the past. Ephesians 1 and Romans 5.8. That you remain the apple of His eye in the present according to Proverbs 7 and that His love is guaranteed in the future, according to Lamentations chapter 3. And do you understand that that promise, that that guarantee has to have something backing it For God's promise of future love to be a legitimate promise upon which we can set our lives, there has to be some sort of down payment, some sort of guarantee. And the amazing thing about God's love is that the guarantee of His love is Himself. He puts Himself and His own reputation on the line as the guarantee of His love. His word is His bond. And we know this because throughout the Bible, what we find is God defining Himself as love. We find that in 1 John chapter 4 that love is not just something that God does or an attribute that belongs to Him. Love is actually what He is. We wouldn't even know, we wouldn't even know the experience of love if it wasn't for the experience of God's grace. That The love of God demonstrates to us isn't just a feeling or a means of communicating with people. It's a manifestation of His innate nature. And look how that holy and beloved identity plays itself out in the Christian life broadly and in the church specifically. One, the gospel changes our hearts. Look at verse 12, because you have this chosen, beloved, holy identity, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. He says, I want you to put these things on it's as if these are the new clothes that go with your new identity. These are clothes that fit you. These are clothes that are your style, so put them on. And he defines the first as compassion, particularly within the context of the church that we are to be with others as they suffer. That's what compassion means. That word calm at the beginning of compassion means with, that we're to be with others as they're suffering. It's the motivation that drives you to run towards those that are hurt, hurting rather than running away. And we've all experienced that to some extent or another. You ask somebody, hey, how's your day going? And then they actually tell you how their day is going. And you're really, really surprised that they were honest with you about how terrible their day is going. And there's a party that just kind of wants to back into the bushes. Right? But compassion demonstrates itself differently. That when I hear you're hurting or when I hear things are wrong, rather than running away, I press in. That I want to be with you in it. That me, anchored to God, with Him as my foundation for love and affection for you as a brother or sister in Christ, with Him as my anchor, I can actually afford to lean in. Because the cost has already been paid for that suffering and I get to lean into it with you. Second, kindness. And we sung about this already this morning. Kindness is that idea that you care for others and that your care for them surpasses your most natural inclination. That your care for others surpasses your most natural inclination. That where your tendency would naturally be to stop in demonstrating this sort of affection for somebody, You actually press even deeper into it. Third, humility. That you put others before yourself. That in the words of C.S. Lewis, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. That you get to put others first in your life, meekness. This is perhaps the hardest one for modern day people to understand because it goes against everything that is not only within us naturally, but also everything that is within us culturally. And even as we hear the word meekness, we naturally think of the definition that we've heard, most likely in a church service, that doesn't really mean anything to us. Because the word meekness means strength under control. And here's what that practically means for you. It means that as a Christian, you are neither weak and passive, nor do we use our strength for selfish motivations. That we use our strength in a measured and purposeful way. See, we think meekness and we hear weakness. But that's the opposite of what this passage is talking about. It's actually talking about an incredible amount of strength. It's the kind of strength that we talked about last week, the kind of strength that with Jesus nailed to a cross, having all the power in the world to call down legions of angels from heaven, to remove him from the cross and to set everything right and to exact justice on those who deserve it, instead, he stayed. The most amazing example of strength under control that the world has ever seen. And finally, patience. Long-suffering. With others. And long-suffering is another word that we typically don't use, but it's such a perfect word because long-suffering literally means to suffer long. That I'm going to be patient with you as I suffer you long. And it's not coincidental that this list so closely resembles the fruit of the Spirit that we find in Galatians 5 because each of these attitudes are absolutely counterintuitive to our natural inclination. They are only enabled by the Spirit. But not only does the gospel change our hearts, the gospel also changes our actions. Look at verse 13. All of these things, the meekness and the patience and all of this affection, the gentleness and the kindness, all of these things now lead us to action. Verse 13, bearing with one another, shoulder to shoulder, side by side, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Bearing with one another that we do not give up on one another easily. church culture in general has enabled individuals to not bear with one another. Because what it means is that if things get difficult, or if things don't go my way, or if I don't like you, or I don't like the way that you're doing it, I can just leave here and go somewhere else. I can just walk away. But what does it actually mean to bear with one another, to not give up, to press through the awkwardness and to press through the difficulty and to have the hard conversations and to look eye to eye even through disagreement and to love one another enough to have those hard conversations. And that goes hand in hand with the second declaration, not only bearing with one another, but if one has a complaint against another, also forgiving each other. And this is so hard for us but notice where the strength to forgive comes comes from, because it's actually rooted in the New Covenant. Paul, in this passage, does not say, forgive one another so that God will forgive you. Rather, he says, God has forgiven you, therefore you must forgive one another. And that's a whole different motivation. It's a recognition of the fact that that according to Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32, we are to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And listen, forgiveness is not an easy idea. It's not ordinarily something that comes to people overnight. It oftentimes takes days or weeks or months or years to work through the difficulty and the pain and the struggle of what it is to forgive. But to the extent that you struggle with forgiveness, the calling of this text is to think about how much God has forgiven you. And in thinking about that and in dwelling, uh, and in, and in dwelling on, on that, that it causes us to be more forgiving of those who hurt us. So that, as one commentator put it, the opposite is also true. If you don't feel forgiven, you'll have a hard time forgiving others if you typically have a tough time forgiving others, you may not truly feel forgiven yourself. And so the encouragement that this particular author gives is to remember that God has completely wiped your sin slate clean because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, that all of the things you deserve to be paid back for had been cleared away because God has forgiven you. And when you own that statement for yourself, you'll find it increasingly tough to hold a grudge against someone else. So to pose the diagnostic question, to the extent that you feel unable to forgive, ask yourself, do I feel truly forgiven? Do I believe that everything necessary for my forgiveness has already been provided, that God has already done the difficult work, that He's already guaranteed that for me. And look how this begins to play itself out ultimately in verse 14. And above all of these, put on love. If you have to pick one, put on love because it informs everything else that comes underneath it. Above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So understand what this passage is indicating. We live in a society in which diversity is touted as being the most noble virtue that one can embrace. And so what our culture does as a response to that sentiment is it wants to make your race or your sexuality or your political ideology the most important marker of your identity. And it's a very convenient system because what it allows me to do then is to look at who you are and what defines you, at least in my eyes, and how you look and where you come from and what you particularly believe. And I get to put you in a nice, neat little box where I presume to know every detail of your life and I get to either embrace you or discard you because of who you are. And certainly, even within the context of the church, there are many things that set us apart, important things and unimportant things, not only those ones that I mentioned, but everything from our upbringing to our ethnic heritage to whom we root for in a baseball game. But interestingly, the Bible takes an opposite tact from the world when it comes to the church. It elevates not the things that make us different from one another but the most important things that we have in common. So understand then the implication. When Christ intervenes in your life, He doesn't make you a cookie-cutter automaton. Your heritage and your personality, your characteristics and your skill sets, your uniqueness all remain intact to be used of God. But now you have a new overarching interest that realigns the priorities of your life. So that where the world says, your race is what's most important, or your sexuality is what's most important, or your political ideology is most important, the Bible says all of those things, while not being insignificant parts of who you are, fall under this much broader umbrella of your new identity in Christ, that everything else about you is now properly ordered under your identity in Christ. And now you've been given not only a new identity, but a new motivation, which is love. see, the world system allows me to hate those who disagree with me. But in the biblical system, with this newly ordered life and this newly ordered identity, I can actually extend love, particularly, again, within the context of the brotherhood and sisterhood of Christ. And as we indicated already, the love that the Bible talks about is not some saccharine, sentimental, opportunistic, convenient love. That's love the way that Thomas Aquinas defined it, that to love is to will the good of the other. That God's love was not just sentiment or emotion or sympathy, but but rather He demonstrated His love in calling out our sin That love at times can actually be confrontational. Done in a spirit that is willing the good of the other. And that love also demonstrated itself in Jesus coming to earth. And as we talked about at length last week, dying for sinful people. See, true love for the Christian is both self-sacrificing and corrective. It's the kind of love that a parent shows for their child. I will give up everything for your good, for the sake of demonstrating on some small scale the love that Christ has for you, just so that you get a glimpse of his goodness. And by the same token, that love is not always played out in permissiveness, but also in correction. Why? Because I am most interested in your good And in verses 12 through 15, the gospel of verses 1 through 11 is put on display in a real and practical way. How? Because a bunch of undesirables and misfits have now become a chosen race. People who are selfish and conniving have now become a holy nation. A people who are a royal mess have now become a royal priesthood. Verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. So here's what he's saying. That love, when it's put primary in your life, when it's at the top of the pecking order of who you are as a person, and when it flows down into everything else, it brings about this peace of Christ that's going to rule in your heart. And you are called to that sort of peace as a people, as a local body. Now notice that Paul ties together those two ideas, and it's the same thing that John does in the first letter that he wrote, First John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love." But understand this, brother and sister, when you understand the love of God and put on display the love of God in your life, it has a unique power to create peace. And that peace is to rule our hearts individually and corporately. Now imagine if a local congregation was able to put these things into place. Was able to live according to these means. As imperfect, broken people, yes, but to actually live this way. Imagine if a people were so marked by love and humility and forgiveness with one another, which is the calling of this text, that it then became their calling, or rather became their calling card to the world around them. What if it was what we were known for? But when the church is marked by hostility and resentment and bitterness, It is offering nothing that the world doesn't already have. And it's thankfulness to the Lord, according to this text. Thankfulness for what He's done that keeps us from arrogance and infighting. So how do we learn what to do and how do we engage our hearts and our minds as the church together? Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So here is is Paul's ultimate answer for what it looks like as the local body to put these things into practice practically week to week. Teach the word. Not only as I'm doing right now, but also one another as you interact in your lives. Admonish, which has that idea of correction, that I know you enough and I love you enough and you love me enough and have enough trust in me that when I call you out or correct you on something that I see individually in your life, there's a response. And by the way, when I say I, I don't mean me as Jonathan, but I mean I in the royal sense of the word, as you interact with one another. That the word of God, not the opinion of man, is our standard and our truth. But notice what else he includes. And it's fascinating culturally to recognize this. Because he includes the singing of hymns and spiritual songs. Outside of a concert of your favorite band or performer, is there anywhere in your life where you sing with other people? It's a bizarre thing when you think about it in a human perspective. And yet we gather together as the church and we stand next together... Stand, stand next to each other rather and we lift up our voices together to worship our God. That we are responding to God in worship. We're declaring who He is and we are training our souls with words that embed and resonate. Songs that communicate deep and abiding truth. So that in the moments of hardship and heartache, our souls are equipped with the language of Worship the language of lament and encouragement. And this brings us back to our first point, do you see that none of this can be done outside of the body of Christ being gathered together locally? So some people will say, well, I'm a Christian and I'm part of the big C church, but I don't need to align with a local church. My question and response is How do you intend on putting into practice the things the scripture has laid out here? How do you obey all of the one another's in this passage? To be honest with one another, to forgive one another, to admonish one another, to love one another. See, without the gathering together of God's people, you will never be in a place to use the unique giftedness that God has given you or to be a beneficiary of the unique giftedness that He has granted someone else. Verse 17, and whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So let's end with a diagnostic question. Through looking at the Savior, and being reminded of your status have you fiercely, violently, relentlessly put to death the works of the flesh? Have you put on love and extended forgiveness? Have you lived humbly and approached others with kindness? and suffered along with others in compassion? Have you determined to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly? Have you devoted yourself to the gathering of the saints, which is the venue for all of these things to take place to begin with? Or have you grown comfortable, satisfied, and complacent to listen to a sermon, to sing an occasional song, to make it to the gathering as it's convenient. Brothers and sisters, the gathering of the church is the primary means by which this Christian growth takes place. And specific to us at Disciples Church, God has graciously and generously provided a place for us to meet and the freedom to worship Him in spirit and in truth with nothing held back so that you may be equipped for the work of the ministry. So that you can leave this place and go back to your family and your friends and your neighborhood and your job and with the word of Christ dwelling in you richly, do everything in the name of the Lord in thankfulness so that a lost world might come and see and savor Jesus Christ as their only hope for forgiveness and recognize the church as his redeemed bride worthy of love and affection. You see, the gathered church is the body of Christ on earth, and we cannot claim to love Jesus while neglecting His bride. It's my hope for us this morning as we're challenged by the Word, as we grieve what we lost a year ago, and as we celebrate what God has given us in this season is that we would see the tremendous privileges and opportunities that we've been given within this local assembly to make much of our Savior. And that in so doing it would lead us to worship God and make much of Him today. So now we get to put these things into practice. We get to respond to the teaching of God's Word. We get to sing songs that remind us of deep truths and proclaim God's goodness and faithfulness We get to respond with catechism, declaring what we believe about the church. And we get to do it in thankfulness, with our hearts stirred with affection for Christ. So let's pray and let's worship Him well. God, we thank You. We thank You for Your bride. God, we realize that the church in this world, not just locally here at Disciples Church, but in our sister churches throughout the region, throughout the country, and throughout the world are not perfect representations of who you are. But we also thank you that in your goodness and in your grace, your church collectively across congregations and across continents has put on display the love and the care of Christ for her. God, as a local church here, would we do what we have been called to do? Would we be faithful in these things and faithful in responding to these things? Would we devote ourselves to the teaching of Your Word? Would we, have, would we dwell richly? Would the Word of God, rather, dwell richly in us? Would we forbear with one another and be long-suffering with one another and forgive one another and have compassion towards each other? Would we be honest with each other and, and humble as we approach one another? And God, in so doing, Would there be an unmistakable picture of the goodness and grace of our Savior in the ways that we interact and respond? God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to worship, and we pray that in everything we do, we would worship you well in this morning and in the ones to come, and we thank you for your faithfulness. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.